Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Hi, my name is Howard Hamilton, founder of Soccer Metrics Research. Welcome to Interval Magazine's exclusive interview with former Saint Etienne, Tottenham, and Liverpool Director of Football, Damien Camoli. Damien, thanks for joining us. How are things going? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, sure. Let's take a quick look backward at last season in the Premier League. I think we all know the story from 2011-2012, that famous last-second goal by, uh, by Guero to the side of the league for Manchester City, um, their first title in 44 years. In 2012-2013, Manchester United wins the league with five matches to spare. Why? <laughs> that's a good that's a good start um I, I i think rather than looking at manchester united success i think it's more interesting to look at why man city haven't been able to have the same success as the, the year before and for me to be honest with you i've had this debate many times before it is kind of a mystery why is it that with the same manager the same coaching staff the same players it is so difficult to to sustain success, and I don't think anybody has got an answer because if if people had an answer, it would be uh, you could you could see that on the pitch. I think I think Man City had a few injuries on key players, uh, notably uh, company, um, and I think that I think Joe Hart had a difficult time as well last season where he was absolutely fantastic the season before. For me, the, the year they won the league, he was the number one the goalkeeper in the world, you know, by a mile. Last year was more difficult. Um, and I also think as third, the third one, I think uh, the fact they came out of the Champions League quite early, for them it was a big thing, you know, big topic on their, on their agenda last year, the Champions League. And I think they probably lost something, you know, they lost a, a spark in the team when they went out to the Champions League. So those three elements, uh, I mean, looking from the, in, from the outside in, obviously some people, you know, from the inside will, might say differently, but that's, how the, that's, that's the way I look at it. And then United have been absolutely consistent throughout, not conceding many goals. Uh, Van Persie scoring goals when they needed to, and that's how you win the league. Right. Um, to you, what was the biggest surprise from the 2012-13 season other than the final result? Um, I didn't think Spurs would collapse two years running. Uh, the previous years, they were f- the previous year they were 15 points ahead of Arsenal and finished one point be- be behind Arsenal, which means that Arsenal took uh, took uh, 16 points over Spurs within four months, I think it was. And last year after Spurs beat Arsenal at home, I think it was in April uh, or end of March. February. February, well, they, had, they were seven points ahead of Arsenal, um, and Arsenal finished one point ahead of them. So for me, it was the biggest surprise last season. Okay. Um, you're on the outside looking in now. So what are your impressions of the transfer activity this summer? Mad. I, don't, I think there is only one word. I think uh, it's, it's mad. It's unseen. I've never seen before. I think there are a combination of, of, of aspects to it. First of all, the, the, uh, the new TV rights, TV right money coming into the Premier League, you know, almost bringing 
two billion pounds uh, worth of, of money of cash in the Premier League every year. Uh, obviously, that makes absolutely everybody wealthy. You know, when you see uh, the players that the likes of Cardiff and Norwich are going after and the money they are spending, it's uh, never seen that before. Uh, and the second aspect is uh, Monaco and PSG from my country in France um, have done things that nobody expected. You know, P Monaco were very, very active early on, spent a lot of money. PSG have, have spent a lot of money as well, but have been consistent because the previous summer as well, they spent a lot of money. Um, and then the third aspect, which people don't talk much about, but you can notice when you're in the middle of the transfer world, is that the, the clubs in Eastern Europe, uh, mainly Russia and Ukraine, are spending a lot of money as well on this market. So the, Europe, the Eastern Europe clubs, the Western Europe clubs, sorry, if they want to keep up, they've got to spend as much as the ones, as the likes of, of uh, Dynamo Kiev, Shakhtar Donetsk, um, Zenit St. Petersburg, you know, all those teams are spending a lot of money. So if you want to keep up and you are an English club or Spanish club or a French club, uh, you need to pay as much as they do. Right. It seems that um, there hasn't been that much activity in the Southern European countries, you know, aside from some big names. We obviously hear about uh, Damien Bale and Real Madrid's press campaign. Um, is it lack of money in the Southern European countries? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. I mean, we are in a strange situation at the moment where you've got Two clubs in France, Monaco and Paris Saint-Germain. You've got the whole of the Premier League and you've got the whole of the German League, Bundesliga, who are really wealthy. And then the Eastern Europe clubs that I've just mentioned, you know, adding, and you can add to those uh, a few of the, the clubs in, in Moscow, which are have got a lot of money to spend. Apart from that, everybody else is struggling. You know, Portuguese football is struggling. Italian football is struggling big time. Um, Spanish football, apart from the, the, the big two, uh, is, struggling, is struggling big time. You know, when you see Valencia uh, making an inquiry about uh, Olivier Giroud from Arsenal on loan, I mean, you know, that's, that's a very strange request because it's not never going to happen. But the thing is that Valencia haven't got money to do anything else than a loan. So you've got these two-tier um, uh, transfer activity and economical power at the moment. Which is which is very strange. It sticks to uh, it goes along with the economical situation of, of the countries. If you look at you know France is struggling with with growth and Italy. I mean you know I'm not an economist, but it's well documented that all those countries are struggling. And it makes sense that everybody else, every economical activity in the country does struggle. Um, you've got the Premier League, which like is like a, another planet. And then you might Monaco and PSG on another planet, and then the Bundesliga hanging on that. But it's a strange situation. And right. if you are a club with a lot of money at the moment, there are incredible opportunities on the market. Absolutely incredible. So what's the reaction in France to the buying behavior of PSG and, and Monaco? Because it seems very um, Anglo-Saxon, their behavior. There is, it's a double reaction. Uh, I think everybody agrees it's very good for French football. Uh, you see, last year, um, attendance in the stadium, attendance seems to have gone up, uh, TV ratings have gone up. Um, uh, the, the TV rights sold abroad have gone up by, I think, 
10 times over the last two or three years. And, uh, and they are expecting those TV rights to go, uh, to go up even, even more in the next two or three or four years. Uh, so all that is a plus. Uh, the downside is those two clubs do not spend the money in the French market. So I, I think PSG have signed only one player from, from France uh, this, this summer, not many the year before. PSG, uh, Monaco have signed one central defender from Valenciennes for 4 million euros, which in Monaco's terms is, is not much. So I think the clubs, will, the other 18 clubs, would love to see those two giants spending a bit of their money in France because that could activate, reactivate the market. You know, if, if the money goes down to other clubs, then those clubs are able to spend more money, etc., etc. It's not happening at the moment. So um, it's a mix, mixed feelings, but overall, I think everybody agrees it's a very positive thing for French football. Okay. So where do you believe everyone will end up when the music stops on August 31st? Sorry? Um, when the transfer window closes on the, the 31st of August, where do you think some of the um, principal names that we've been hearing about will end up? I, I think there are only I, I think there are only a few more big signings coming up. You know, uh, I think Bayern Munich have done their business. I think Dortmund have done their business. Um, I think Man City, Chelsea have done their business. I think Liverpool more or less would have done their business. So you don't uh, think? Could, so you don't think Rooney will? You you don't think that Rooney will go to Chelsea? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I've got no information, so it's difficult to say. Uh, from the outside, I will say it's very difficult for Manchester United to sell one of, the, one of their best players to one of their big rivals. You know, I, I, I think everybody agrees, put more or less at the moment in the Premier League, that Chelsea are favourite to win the league. Um, uh, so if on top of that, Man United sell one of their best players, it will make them even more favourite. So it's, it's difficult. I think there will be there will be two or three, four maybe big big deals. You know, Bale, Suarez, maybe Rooney, but I doubt it. I think Barcelona will buy a top central defender and spend a lot of money at that position. Other than that, I think we'll see we'll see we'll see more smaller deals um, because the big boys have moved uh, have have made have made their move quite early. Okay, is that? Is that an effect of voucher for a play, or does that have nothing to do with it? I think it's got nothing to do with it. It's just that at the end of last season, everybody was sitting on so much money. Sorry, at the end of last season and entering into the transfer window, all those players were sitting on so much money that if you don't do your business so early and grab the best top talent early, uh, someone else can might grab them. So if you look at, you know, Monaco have done. I've done uh, Falcao, Moutinho, and Rodriguez. Uh, I think it was end of May, early June. Uh, PSG, I've done Cavani quite early. Um, so yeah, Man City, I've done Fernandinho quite early as well, and then Egredo. Uh, that's why, you know, if you, don't, if you don't act soon, the sooner the better, because otherwise there is too much competition and you, risk, you take the risk of using your targets. Okay. Um... This is the Interval Magazine interview with Damien Camoli, um, Howard Hamilton. And I'd like to talk to you, uh, Damien, about the role of analytics in football. I think people in the football industry know of your partnership with Billy Bean of the Oakland A's of Moneyball fame. 
Um, what are your thoughts on the statistical analysis culture in North American sports? First of all, it's not a partnership with Billy, it's a friendship. Okay, friendship. <laughs> before, before, before it's anything professional, it's, it's something personal between Billy and I. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, obviously, I'm very interested because my inspiration in my work in, in analytics come from, from, from your part of the world. So I'm very interested to see what's going on. I try to keep up with what's going on, even though, you know, sometimes it's noisy. Um, more and more inclined to look at what's being done in the NBA uh, and NFL, but more in the NBA because it's a free flow sport like, like football. Uh, you know, it's not a stop, start, stop, start sport like it is in, in baseball or, or or in the NFL. Um, the interesting aspect also the NBA now they are they they are getting the live tracking data uh, from games, so they are getting fitness data as we, as we have been doing in football for the last maybe 15 years. So um, it's it's very obviously it's very interesting, uh, challenging as well because you know we know we are far behind in, in European football in a lot of areas and, and we haven't got the expertise and the experience that some of the, the guys uh, in the US sports have got, but it's, it's fascinating. You know, every time I can speak to Billy or, or RC or San Antonio Spurs or, or Sam Presti from, from, uh, from uh, Oklahoma City, it's, I'm, I really enjoy it and try to take as much as I can back home. <laughs> Right. Yeah, you make a really interesting point about the NBA's increasing use of optical data, of technical, tactical data, because it seems that even though they haven't had that data available for as long as the soccer people, say through ProZone or other companies, they've been doing a lot more with those data and developing much more deeper insights than, than people in football. Um, why is that, in your opinion? I think there is a tradition of using analytics in, in, in the US that we haven't got in Europe across the sports. Uh, I also think there is a, an issue of resources. Uh, you know, apart from maybe 10 clubs in the Premier League and, and a few of the big boys in Europe, there are not many clubs that can afford to to collect the data and then have, have analysts, you know, full-time analysts to, uh, to inter interpret the data. So those are those two aspects are, are, are quite important. Um, when I speak to the guys in the NBA, they think they are, they are, you know, they don't really know what they're going to encounter because they are just starting and they are very eager to see and to hear from us what we've been collecting and, and, and what we do with the data we've been collecting. collecting. Um, but, our, you know, there are probably 10 clubs in the Premier League that are as advanced uh, in, in terms of data analytics, are, are, are the, the, the teams in the, in, in the NBA are. Okay. Um, was there anything in your thinking about Alex and football that had to be revised upon working as a sporting director or director of football? There are many. <laughs> I think the challenge, the, the, the biggest challenge we are facing at the moment is uh, making sure we are looking at the right data and we, we do get the right interpretation of the defensive data. So defense in football is a challenge uh, in terms of, of analytics. Um, I don't think we have had any breakthrough, you know, and uh, 
I think the next five years of how we are going to interpret the data from a defensive point of view is going to be very, very interesting. It's not dissimilar to what has been going on in, in, in baseball, you know, when they've been looking at defense for quite a while. And I think football is facing the same, cha the same challenge. The other area, which I think is not specific to football because it works in football, other sports and in business as well, is that people tend to appoint analysts, uh, whether it's head of analytics or director of analytics, however you want to call it, and then they expect this individual to deliver some data to some decision makers who haven't got a clue what the data means. Um, and, and I think we need, you know, I, I try to explain to people, you've got the data, your head of analytics, you've got your GM or, or, or chief executive, whoever is supposed to, or the manager sometimes, head coach, whoever is supposed to make all the personal decision. And, and the guy arrives, gives this data, put the data on the, on the desk and say, you go, good luck. And I don't think that works. Um, I think there is, there is a need for somebody in there who understands both the sports and the data and can have the right interpretation of the data to make sure that the data used to make the decision is the right data and that the decisions are the right ones as well. And I think that's where Billy's experience is fantastic because, you know, he's, uh, he knows the sport and he understands data as well. So he's, he, he, get, he has the, both, the, the best of, best of, of both worlds. Okay. Uh, Damien, what is it that us numbers guys, in quotes, don't get about the football establishment? In what way? Um, I would guess um, things that you know, their their approach to analytics or perspective on it, that their perspective on the game in general that we don't necessarily appreciate or or recognize as hugely important as, as they would. It's difficult. It's a difficult question to answer. Um, obviously, uh, I've been working with analytics for almost 10 years now, so you know I'm probably not the right person to answer this question because you know the more people bring me stuff, the more I look at it, the more I'm challenged by an analytics people, and, and the more I like it. Um, uh, okay, so let's look at it the other way. Uh, what is it that the what is it that the football establishment doesn't get about the numbers guys, about those who those who work in analytics? Football wisdom, football, football tradition, uh, football being too conservative, uh, football trying to do it the old, the old way, not thinking there is another way. Uh, I think the change will come from the top. I think there are a cl few clubs in Germany who are doing it the right way. You know, Dortmund being a fantastic example. Dortmund are you know, they are extremely progressive club on all aspect, aspects, and I think they are proving, you know, the entire role that, world that, they are, that it can be done the right way. I think the top clubs in the Premier League are definitely doing it, doing it whether they do it very well, well, not good enough, it's another debate, but it will, the example will come from the top. And, and as more and more people will do it at the top, it will go down to the, other, to the, the rest of the clubs. Um, and that's, I, I can understand the frustration from analytic people, them, you know, trying sometimes hitting a brick wall, trying to, to speak to football people. Unfortunately, it's the way it is, and it might take a while, 
you know, in what in, in what was the year that Bill James wrote his book? 69? It was it was the early eighties. Early it was 80s. late late seventies, early eighties. Right. So how long did it take? Twenty five years to get into baseball? Yes. Right. And I, and and Billy and I brought analytics into football in two thousand and six. <laughs> so it's only seven years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to have to figure out how I'll make money in between that. <laughs> um, but but that's that's a really good point. Um, and um, yep. So is there? It seems that analytics is at a crossroads right now because um, there's there's a lack of sophistication in the use of data by the clubs. I think any innovation that happened in analytics won't happen from the football clubs. Yet analysts on the outside um, need access to data, which they don't get because football clubs hold everything to be proprietary, even even when it's not. Um, is it in danger of becoming asphyxiated by by lack of access or lack of lack of knowledge of what to do with with the data? Probably the case already. It's probably the case already because if the data was public, uh, I'm sure there is thousands of people around the world, extremely bright people, who who will look at the data and make a use of it. So it's an, it's, it's an interesting debate and it's an ongoing debate. Being, being a club executive myself, uh, I'm, I will be extremely reluctant to open up, you know, to make public the, the, our, the data on our players or any data we've got. Uh, I, I think the way to counter that is to appoint quality people in your organization. Obviously, you kind of cut yourself from the analytic community and the analytic world uh, and from, you know, as I just said, from very bright people who could make good use of the data. But uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting debate again. I, I, I'm not sure I've got the answer. My answer to that, but, but it's also because I've worked in clubs that had the resources to do it. But my answer to that would be to say, you know, if you've got to have three, four, five, six analysts and make the work in-house, You've got to do it, and then it's up to the, those guys to go out and, and find new stuff that have, have been done, you know, or are being done in other sports. Um, but as far as the entire an entire set of data going out public, I can't see this happening for the next many years. Right. So let's talk a little bit about use of data. Is there? Uh, so, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, ju I would just uh, like to have. Uh, I would just like to add one point of, on that one. Sure. I think the biggest, the big, big difference between US sports and and soccer and football is the fitness data. Fitness data is at the heart of everything we do in football, right? And it's definitely something that you don't want the other teams to see. It's definitely something you don't want the public to see. Because fitness data as an executive will help you make decisions and will help you yeah, make decisions that the market cannot understand when you do make the decision. And it's only when the player has moved on 
that the market turns around and say, oh, okay, we understand now why he's made this decision. So giving that away and putting it in the public, the public domain will be a major, major issue for football clubs. And it's not the case in US sport because there is no sport really where fitness is as important as it is in football. When I say fitness, I don't mean the, the fitness of the individual, but I mean the, the fitness data which will help you make decision on personnel. Okay, not even in the NFL. I don't. I don't think so. I know a little bit about the NFL because, I, first of all, I love it. I'm a Niners fan, by the way, to be put on recall. Um, I don't. I don't think it is that much because when you look at what you look at in football, one of the main aspects to look at is the the, the repetition of high-intensity runs. Right. So if you take if you take a player's career, so let's say a player come, came into your football club three years ago. And you and you still you can you can see that he's starting to decline in terms of the number and the of high intensity runs he makes and the distance run per game. You are the only one who can see it. The rest of the teams on the market cannot see it. But that's an absolute crucial element of your decision making. And I'm not sure it's the case in NFL because Again, it's a stop-start sport. So if a wide receiver makes, I don't know, if he runs five routes and then he's taken off for the other two plays or three plays, you know, how can you know that he's, he's re I mean, it's not like in football where it's 90 minutes, you know, up and down, up and down. If he's standing in sideline for five or 10 minutes, it's difficult to have an accurate fitness assessment of the player. Okay, fair enough. Um, how do you go about valuing the player? And let's use some examples from previous acquisitions you made. Um, Stuart Downing and I'm not Andy sure Carroll. I, I'm, I'm not sure I want to talk about individuals. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, so how do you value a player in general? You try to benchmark them. It's as simple as that. Uh, I can't talk about English players in general. You know, English players are overvalued by the market. They're overpriced. It's like this. It's for everybody. It's for it's the same for everybody for every club. Whether you are league, whether you are Crew Alexandra in League One, or whether you are Manchester City in 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 Premier League, and the richest club in the world, every club has got to overpay when he buys an English player. Uh, so that's as as far as I would go down in terms of individual players. Uh, other than that, you try to evaluate players, but benchmark them to the rest of the league you're in and the market you are trying to fish in. You know, so if you are in the Premier League, you've got access more or less of of all players around Europe. Um, so when you know you say, okay, I'm going, I'm going after this striker who is that age. Uh, you know, he's 25. He's playing in that league. Uh, while the latest moves in Europe from a similar league, league same size league, uh, same position coming to the Premier League, you know, same age coming to the Premier League. So you look at what has been doing before and you know more or less what the, what's the benchmark, what the benchmark is and what the market says. That's one way, but it's a very important way. And then you look at scouting reports, you look at video reports, you look at data, um, 
and, and again, you know, the, the contractual situation of the player is very important as well because the player who's got one year left on his contract obviously will be a lot cheaper than the player who has got four years left on his contract. So when you, you work in the club, you try to, make, to put processes in place that are very straight that you want to stick to. Um, and I could talk about those for hours, but I'll just give you a few ideas that will, will give you an indication of how the player evaluation comes out. Um, do tactics and manager game plans fit into these player evaluations or these transfer discussions? Sorry? Do tactics, do existing team tactics and manager game plans figure into transfer discussions? Yes, because you try, if you play a certain way, you try to, you want to sign players you can't play the way you play. You, you know, that can fit your style of play. The challenging aspect of scouting, is probably the most challenging, is how, how can you transpose your scouting observation and, your, and what you get, the data you get, from one team, one player who plays in a team that's got absolutely no similar style to what you are trying to do. And that's very, very challenging. And that's when I think on top of the data, you look at, I think the, the scouting reports will be crucial uh, because that's, you know, that's where the scouts will be able to, to tell you, I think he can adapt or I don't think he can adapt because the data will tell you, yeah, he can adapt to your team. And if you replace X by Y, well, you, got, you, might, you, you might gain 10%, fine. You know, that's only data, but can he really adapt to your style of play? That's extremely challenging. Okay. Um, you've received a lot of criticism in the press, even from former executives, that the players that you've brought on didn't stay very long with, with the clubs that you worked with. Have you run through the numbers to see how long signings made the conventional way stayed, and how did, how did your approach stack up? No, I've, no, I've, I've never... You mean players I've signed and I've, right. I haven't stayed long at club? Right. No, I've never. It's not. It's never something that came that that came to my mind. Uh, I don't think. I don't even think it's the truth. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, if you look at Spurs, Gareth Bale is still there. Uh, Modric stayed stayed for a long time, and Kabul is still there. And, uh, Danny Rose is still there. I, I was thinking more. On and on and on. I was thinking more of Son Etienne in the statements that the club president said. But if you, uh, if you don't want to respond directly, well, to that, the first time, the, no, no, it's fine. The, the first, the first time I went to Saint Etienne, uh, the players, the players are signed, say for quite a while. And on top of that, I think I calculated recently that we spent. Um, I think the club made about three or four times back in terms of investment what we spent so i think they made something like 35 million uh profit uh on the players we we signed in 2004 and the second time around it was you know some yeah most of the players have left quietly but i think it was the clear decision to 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 move on the player i don't think it was about quality so you know what what an owner can say if he's Sometimes it's more about politics than reality, so I don't really bother, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, if you were building a team 
what type of player would you select first? Um, I think the, the first thing to look at will be attitude, will be character, personality, because I think there's been a shift in football over the last five years where before we used to, we used to look at talent and now we looked at personality and attitude first. Um, if you think, if you see the likes of Barcelona or Bayern Munich, the way they play as a team is absolutely tremendous. And if you want to do that, you need to make sure that there are egos in those teams, it's obvious, but the egos are playing for the team and not playing for themselves. So right. that's the first thing. When you want to build a team, you want to make sure you've got the right character in place in the but team. And, would you, and the, the second aspect would be technique. Okay. Would you start a specific position? Would you want to build your defense first and your midfield? Or do, no, does it what not you, matter? What you try to do is you try to look at, you try to be very, very strong in the middle, in the in the spine of the team. So your goalkeeper, the two centre-back, your central midfield, and then and then your striker. When you get those three, four players right, uh, you, you know, you've got a good chance to be very, very successful. And coming back to Saint-Étienne, when I joined Saint-Étienne in 2004, uh, the club has been in the second division for years and years, and, and, and we've signed one central defender, one midfield player, one striker uh, for a couple of million, and we went from second division to sixth place. The Becks finished in 25 years, I think it was, or 20 years, just with three players. Because coming in, I knew that if we were getting those three players right, we, we could have a very successful season, and it's exactly what happened. Okay. Um, we asked Martin Tyler if he felt that goalkeepers were undervalued in football. And he said, and I quote, goalkeepers never are and never will be undervalued um, because their teammates know that if your goalkeeper is not very good, you could drop points and lose games. So, so I'll ask you, are goalkeepers undervalued? Yes, I think he, Martin is right in terms of respect the play, the goalkeepers get from their from their coaches or managers and from their players. But from a, from a market perspective, uh, the goalkeepers are undervalued. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked with an analytic an analytic guy who used to tell me all the time they should be paid as much. It's not more. It's not more than strikers, uh, because strikers will get you points by scoring goals. But goalkeeper will get you a lot of points by saving goals, and so, and it's a lot easier to save goals than to score goals. So in theory, you know, it's a little bit like uh, is it the, the the left tackles in in NFL that cover yes, the blind side of the goalkeeper, right? But it should be the same. You know, the left tackle salary in the NFL have gone skyrocketing in the last what five years, maybe ten years. Ten years. Um, 10 years, and I think goalkeepers should be exactly the same, and it's not the same. It's not the case, because I don't know, strikers are more glamorous, and people think about scoring goals, where efficiency is in goal, and if you want to invest well your dollars, or your pounds, or your euros, put it in goal, and, and, and you'll have a successful season. Right, but I think there's a reason why clubs don't do that. I think the media firestorm would be tremendous. Fans would be up in arms. They wouldn't understand the strategy. Um, 
do you just plow ahead and not really care or do you have to take that into account no you don't you don't you don't care right you do whatever is right for your football club if you, uh, as Billy says, if you listen to the press or the fans, you are bound to sit next to them. Right. All right. So let's conclude your thoughts on the upcoming season. Um, what do you think the main storylines will be in the Premier League? Um, it will be, I think, three teams will fight for the for the title, and like last year, where it was two. With one being favourite, as I said before, I think Chelsea. Not so much because of Mourinho. Well, obviously that helps, but it's because I think the the three players, the you know the uh, Hazard, Oscar, and Mata. Uh, I don't think anybody can match what what their potential create in terms of creativity and goal scoring potential in the Premier League. So I think the two Manchester clubs and Chelsea will fight for the title. Um, and then I think it's going to be uh, again very interesting between Spurs and, and Arsenal for, for fourth place. Uh, I think that will be the big stories. If Arsenal signs Suarez, then I will put Arsenal into the, in the favourites for the league as well. Okay. Will we miss Wigan, QPR, or Reading in the Premier League this season? Uh, it means in terms of quality of play, you mean? Or, right, quality of play. Um, well, Martinez has moved from Wigan to Everton, so what he was doing over there at Wigan, he should bring it to, to Everton. Um, it's going to be interesting, you know, to... I mean, Malky Mackay, Mackay the, the Cardiff manager, has never been tested at this level, uh, so we don't really know how he's going to approach it. Will be direct football, passing football. Um, we played against Cardiff in a, in a Garden Cup final a couple of years ago with Liverpool, and it was extremely challenging game. We only won on penalties. Um, so uh, I think he's going to do well, but I don't know what style he will have. Uh, Ian Holloway was in the Premier League with um, with Blackpool a few years ago, so we knew what to expect from him. I think, as always, one one will have a good season among those three clubs. One will struggle, and one will probably go back down straight straight away. So we'll see what happens there. Okay. Will Spurs get into the Champions League this season? I think if they keep Bale, they've got a good chance. If Bale goes that late into the window, they're going to struggle to replace him. Uh, because you can't replace him with one player, so you'll have to sign two or three, and and it's going to be difficult to find the two or three top quality players that they'll need. So if he stays, yeah, good chance. If he goes, big challenge for them, especially if Arsenal gets Suarez. Okay. And who will win the league? Chelsea. Okay. And where does the analytics movement go from here? In football? Yes, in football. It's going to be bigger and bigger, increasing, increasing over the years. Uh, don't forget, we are very, very early on in the process, as we discussed before. Uh, so I think we're just, seeing, we're just seeing the beginning of it. You know, I know club in the championship who are looking at analytics or appointing uh, analysts, uh, forward-thinking clubs, forward-thinking people. 
So I think the movement would, would, would spread across football, starting from English football and then the rest of Europe. Okay. All right. Well, sorry. Keep believing. <laughs> yes, keep believing. Yeah, my um, my future viability depends on it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for our questions today. Our feature interview for Integral Magazine has been Damien Camoli. Damien, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. All right. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccer Metrics Research. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to the Soccer Metrics Podcast. The Soccer Metrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at soccermetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at Soccer Metrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.